We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. So Matthew 2, if uh, you were with us the last couple weeks, you remember we went through first week in Advent, the genealogy of Jesus. This person had this son and this person had this person and, and we went all the way on through to Jesus and there were some really actually interesting things about that. And then we saw last week the nativity scene, right? Jesus being born and the conversation that one of God's messengers had with Joseph, Uh, And so now we are kind of, it doesn't say this, but we're going to fast forward in that timeline, maybe about two years. And so this is where we pick up. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is God's word. Father, we ask that as we read what to many of us may be a familiar story, uh, what many of us have maybe in our heads a familiar scene of little miniature statues sitting around our our mantle or our coffee tables uh, or props set up in someone's yard or at a church event. God, may we actually see past all that and see more clearly a God who is at work in his world and a rescuer, a savior who has come to bring hope and peace and joy. And may we see God, may we see Jesus as the king he truly is over all of creation so that we too would bow down and worship to him. We ask that you would do that work in our lives right now in the name of Jesus, amen. All right, it is the Christmas season, so I have to ask, Favorite Christmas movies? Go ahead and like shout them out. Die Hard, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. How many people think Die Hard's a Christmas movie? Raise your hand. Okay, there's, all, there's two types of people in the world. 
Those who think Die Hard is a Christmas movie and those who don't. All right, Julian, do you have a Christmas movie or are you stretching? <laughs> what is it? White Christmas is a good one. It's classic, Home Alone. Elf, there it is. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah. Jimmy, what you got? The Star? Oh, I haven't seen that one. Can I? Night Before Christmas? Or The Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the uh, uh, skeleton dude? Yeah, Nightmare Before Christmas. Cindy? Yeah, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Clark Griswold. It's a wonderful life classic. Gremlins. It's <laughs> a good one. It's a good one. Polar Express. Polar Express. Okay, cool. All right. These are all good ones, you guys. I, I personally, I have two. Uh, we were talking about this last night, what, what our favorite Christmas movies were. And so A Christmas Story, you know, the one where they're like, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, because he wants the BB gun. Uh, so that one, and then Elf is, is a new favorite of mine as well. And I love Elf. There's a scene in Elf where, like, the rug gets pulled out from underneath him, right? Buddy the Elf. Uh, Actually, two times, really, in particular. One, the first one, it's right after he gets called a cotton-headed ninny muggins, you know? And he finds out that he's human. He overhears the elves talking. Well, if he hasn't found out he's a human yet, right? And his whole world is just, like, topsy-turvy. And he's just like, whoa. And everything starts flashing before his eyes of the times when he was the only one who could dunk the basketball. And, you know, he's sitting there in this tiny little seat and he's a giant next to everybody. And suddenly it all comes clear to him, right? Uh, And then the second time is when Santa has to tell Buddy right before he sets out on his journey about his dad being on the naughty list. And he's like, no. I can't scream it right now. Uh, but both of those moments were just like the rug just got pulled out from underneath him. And I feel like I'm going to do that to a few people this morning. And I want to just apologize in advance, okay? Uh, one of the things we did with our kids growing up is, and I'm going to be careful about this because there's some kids in this room and I'm not a monster, uh, but we were cautious about, we never told them North Pole tales, okay? That's the way I'm going to say it right now. You have those conversations with your kids later. But we didn't do that because we didn't want them to hit a point where they were like, wait, if that's not real, is this stuff real? You know, this, this, is this person who you say is like all seeing and like knows what we're doing? <laughs> you know, uh, is, is, is this person real? And so we didn't want to have that confusion for them. And, and again, I, this is not to throw shade on anybody who, who has done that differently. That's, that's fine. But that was a decision we made as a family. And so we just decided let's not create that categorical confusion of which one's fairy tale and which one's real, right? Uh, and so, however, one of our sons decided he wanted to believe, even though we never told him to. And so he was like, I don't care. I'm choosing to believe because I want Christmas to be magical. And I was like, all right, fine. That's fine. You can do that. And then his very next question was, so dad, how does Santa get to every house in one night? And I was like, bro, you just created that problem for yourself. You're on your own. I have no answers for you, okay? Uh, And then I really did kind of feel like a monster, though, when my kid was like, you're ruining Christmas for me. And so again, I, I... 
I feel like I'm going to do that for some people right now, and I'm sorry. This, what we're going to talk about in the next minute or so, I feel a little bit like I'm walking into your homes and I'm just like kicking over your nativity scenes and like Godzilla going in and stomping on them. And I don't want to be a monster, but I'm going to do it because like 90% of your nativity scenes, they're just wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and, and some of you maybe started to catch on a little bit as we were, by the way, it's in my home too. It's on our coffee table and it's just as wrong. Uh, but some of you started to catch on as we were singing a song earlier, right? Uh, what do we call it? Like Wise Men of East or something? And you're like, well, this is a new song. We're doing a new Christmas song. And you sing that first line. And then the second line, you're like, I know what this song is. This is not, what, 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 is, what just happened, right? Uh, this is We Three Kings, isn't it? We Three Kings of Orient are, right? And that's funny, I never sing in person, in public, and while I'm losing my voice, I just tried it. Fail. Anyway, uh, so why did we change that? Why did we change? Bethany was going to do that song this week. I was like, oh, um, we're actually talking about the wise men this Sunday. Can we tweak that a little bit? <laughs> because number one, there probably weren't three of them. And there's nowhere in that story that we heard the number three. Number two, they probably weren't kings. And there's nowhere in that story where it alludes to them being kings. Uh, and number three, they definitely were not there on the night of Jesus' birth. It was likely about two years later, Jesus was an infant. Uh, remember, they went to an inn, to, to a stable, because they couldn't find anywhere in the inn, and so they end up in a manger where Jesus is lying, right? They're there with all the animals outside in the stable. Uh, but the time that these wise men get there, they're now in a home, right? And just with that clue and with how long it would have taken them to travel from where they came from, and along with King Herod being mentioned, we think that Jesus was probably like a toddler at this point, okay? So... You can just remove those three little kings from your nativity scene and put them like way over on the other end of your house to show how far they're traveling at this point. And just do the like, make sure it's to scale, right? Do the math on that. Uh, but also again, uh, probably not three of them. Why? Because well, we get three gifts mentioned, gold, frankincense, myrrh. What in the world is frankincense, right? I always think Frankenstein when I hear that. I don't know. But uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we get three gifts. So at some point, someone was putting together a Christmas play, and they're like, well, we have three gifts we need to present. Uh, we have these three kids who aren't doing anything. Let's give them a job. And so that's probably where that started from. Most likely, actually, uh, who these people were, they would have traveled in large bands. Not like a, a band. Right? But like a large groups of people, they would have been coming as a large group. So we know that there's more than one because it does talk about it in plural, uh, but we don't know if it was two or 20, maybe three. I don't know. I'm not going to destroy that for you completely, but probably not three. It was probably a large group of them. Okay, uh, So there's that going on. And then, and trust me, all this matters. We'll, we'll get to it. It all matters. Uh, then the other thing is they were likely not kings. Now, where that comes from is they were able to go approach King Herod, right? And so they had some type of status where they can get an audience 
with the king of the Jews. Uh, also, the stuff they were bringing, gold, frankincense, myrrh, these were all very valuable things. And so, like, okay, they have status, they have money, maybe they were some kind of royalty from wherever they came from. So, okay, that's not too far of, of a leap, that's fine. But the word that's used for them that often gets translated to wise men for us is actually magi. What does magi sound like? Yeah. This is where our word magic comes from. They were magicians. And so what does that mean? Like, were they a traveling group of magicians who were like pulling stuff out of their hat? And they're like, hey, is there, we heard there was a king born, let's go do a show for him? No. Uh, actually, what they were doing, it, so at this time in the old ancient Near Eastern world, anytime that word magic was used, it was speaking of the customs and the rhythms and the things that people did to understand how the world worked that were foreign to them. So every culture had their own way of understanding how the world worked. And when other people were kind of divining how the world worked through different ways from their own, foreign ways, that was called magic. It could have been very scientific stuff, or it could have been very more religious stuff, or it could have been something altogether different. But if it was foreign to you, you would have called it magic. So these not three, these people, <laughs> this group of people were from somewhere far east, we were told, and they had a way of viewing the world and of understanding the world and of explaining it to others around them that was foreign to the rest. And more than likely, what most people agree, especially because they were following something in the sky, is that they were astrologers. They were learning how to understand the way the world works by looking at the stars primarily, okay? Now, they came somewhere from the east. We don't know exactly where from. By the way, while I'm pulling this rug out from underneath some of you, uh, next week, we're gonna, Lacey and Beth did a really great job putting together a little Christmas thing with the kids and the kids are gonna come up here and there's probably gonna be three wise men. It's okay, guys. It is okay. And it's okay if you leave your three wise men in your nativity scene. Um, it's, it's just a simple way for our kids to join into what we're doing. It's not the main point, all right? <laughs> but anyway, so they would have said from the east. We, we don't know exactly where from the east. However, at this time, remember Matthew speaking to a Jewish audience. And when the Jews would say from the east, typically what they were talking about is where they had in the past spent some time in the east in captivity place called Babylon. And do you remember in the story of Daniel, in the book of Daniel, when we're told all about that time in Babylon, that Daniel and his friends, they were taken and forcibly made to enter into a school of the Magi to learn astrology, to learn how to do divine things, right? To, to understand how the world works and try to predict things. In fact, these were the people that the king of Babylon had them come and say, tell me what this dream means and none of them can do it. And when they couldn't do it, he's getting ready to kill them all until Daniel shows up. He's like, hey, spare their lives. My God has revealed to me what you're looking for. And he explains the dream. Daniel gets put into this position now of power and authority over the Magi in Babylon. Why does all this matter now? This is important because if they were just three kings who somehow learned that there would be another king and they're like, let's pay him homage, that's a whole different story. But 
if there are magi from Babylon coming and we remember the story of Daniel there, we connect this to what we saw in the genealogy, remember? In the genealogy, we saw with all this numerology stuff going on, these ties to Daniel chapter 9, explaining of when the Messiah would come. And Daniel wrote these things down, and they would have had access to it, being in the same band of Magi, helping the king to understand what was going on as well. So how in the world did these people from the east somehow know to follow this star, likely because they had the writings of Daniel there. And God had revealed things to Daniel through vision and through dreams. So God had created a way for people who were not Jews, for people who were not in his chosen nation, to know about his arrival years and years and hundreds of years in advance. And they were waiting for it and watching. That matters because as we saw in the genealogy, God had always been opening up a door for all other nations to come in to his kingdom. And so now you have these people who are seeing, oh, the king has arrived and this is the king that was promised would come and rescue the whole world. We want to go and see him and worship him. That's their response. Coming out of a different culture, a different religion, a different nation, their response is, if this is the king that they have been talking about for centuries who would come and not only rescue Israel, but also set all things straight in the world, we want to go worship that king. That's where our allegiance lies. Now you put that in stark contrast with King Herod, who is king over the Jews at this point. Now remember, they're under Roman control, right? So the Caesar of Rome is really in power, but what they did was they allowed the Jews to still have some of their structure and their, their governing things set up. And so they still had a king that would have been kind of like a middle management person <laughs> over them. And the king lived very, very comfortably by having taxes collected from his own people and giving some of that to Caesar. The king lived very comfortably by having authority over the Jews as long as it was really under the authority of Caesar and he still played by his rules, okay? And so this king now, who is king over the Jews, hears these men come to him, these magi saying, hey, we've heard and we've seen a sign that the king of the Jews was just born. And what's his response? Fear. His response is, I need to grab control of my power right now, of my status, and not give it up. He, he's threatened. What are you talking about? I'm the king of the Jews. Right? And so he very sneakily behind everyone's back. See, he calls his scribes. He's like, tell me through the text where this king would be born. Again, once again, we are seeing that God is speaking to people, letting them know about the arrival of the true king. It's all through the text. They were able to see, oh, in Bethlehem. Like they figured that out because they knew the scriptures well. Similar to how the Magi 
figure it out to follow this thing in the sky, which we are going to talk about in a second because weird, right? We'll talk about it. Don't worry. So they, they knew this is where he's going to be born. And he goes, okay, great. I'm going to tell these magi where to go look. But his sneakiness is, hey, when you get there, when you find him, come and report it back to me so that I also can go and pay homage to this king. I want to also go pay respect and worship. But what's he really doing? And we're going to find this out next week too as we continue through Matthew 2 that what he's really doing is he's trying to find out where this king is so that he can go and have him killed so that he doesn't grow and take his position of power and authority. It's a power grab and it's one of violence and it's one that's inhumane. It's one of oppression and injustice. So you have now right here set up that these other nations who the Jews thought they're not part of this promise of God, are coming to worship the king of the Jews. And then you have the leader of the Jews trying to kill him. And this is really just a foreshadowing of what's to come, isn't it? It's a foreshadowing that one day when this baby grows and he's about 33 years old and he enters into Jerusalem where his kingdom should be, that there's other nations who have already given their lives to him, but the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel are taking his life. That the very people Jesus came for reject him because once again, a fear of losing power and position and authority. Now listen, why, why does this all matter for us? I don't think there's any magi in this room. I know there's not any royalty in this room. Maybe way, way, way back in your genealogy. Uh, but not today, you, you don't rule anything, okay? Sorry. I mean, you rule, but you don't, you don't rule like that. So why does this matter for us today? Because in the same way that King Herod was saying, I'm not giving up my throne and my kingdom, many of us in many moments of our lives say, I am not giving up the throne of my heart. And maybe we, we wouldn't say it, but don't we live that? Don't we at times feel threatened by the fact that there is another king over our very lives? That there's someone else who has say over how we live and who we even are. And that's threatening at times. Do we not fight against that too? There's some who, who would fight against like Herod there's some, like the Magi, who would come to worship and bow down, uh, but maybe you're neither of those in this room. Maybe you're like me at times, and you're just neither. You're indifferent. I, don't, I wonder how many of those Pharisees and scribes went and translated text and came back and said, yeah, it says he's going to be in Bethlehem. But nothing really hit them, right? How many of them then went to Bethlehem? to go and pay homage themselves, to go bow down and worship? How many of us know this story really well? And like, even when I was like, hey, they probably weren't kings and there was probably a lot more than three and they're magi and they weren't there and they're tipping out. You're like, I know, I know, I know. Like, how many people in this room are like, I know this stuff, but it doesn't really hit us. Like, 
we aren't threatened by it and we aren't moved to worship. It just is. Those are those three responses, I think, that this story lays out before us. That either we could feel threatened by the king coming, we could be moved to worship and submit our lives to him, or we might just feel indifferent. And I think the challenge this morning for all of us, for myself, is to actually take a look at which one we're living in. And the challenge is to be honest with ourselves about that. And to see that and to be moved. To be moved like the Magi were in worship. Now, the, the Magi, they, we don't know a ton about them, right? Let's just say that. But they get to this place of coming and worshiping. And when, once they see this little child, Jesus, and they give these gifts and they worship, then they're told, they're warned by God in a dream, don't go and tell Herod, don't report back to him. So they don't, they return back to their homes, right? And so they, they now, out of worship, they now respond in obedience as well. And God is communing with them. He's communicating with them. He's revealing things to them. That's incredible. But for all that to happen, he had to first reveal something to them even before that, right? Like there's this star in the sky and that makes it into all of our, our visuals of the Christmas night as well, right? There's this star in the sky that they're following to get there. When I was a kid, uh, I used to try to chase after a rainbow when I'd see it. I wanted to try to get to the end of it and you can never get to the end of it, right? Uh, how, how many times have you guys seen a star move and then stop and stay in one place. Has anybody seen that? Do we have any astronomers here? I'm not one, but you might think, yeah, you might see a planet do that. Definitely not a star. And so there's actually been a lot of uh, conjecture on what was the star, right? Was it a supernova? Was it a comet? Was, those things wouldn't have done it. Uh, but there has been a theory that maybe it was the planet Jupiter. And that's a really fascinating theory, right? One thing, though, to look at in this is, one, we've never seen necessarily Jupiter do that in the same spot again. Uh, two, when we hear star, sometimes in scriptures, sometimes it means a star. Most of the time, it means something else. A lot of times, star is imagery for spiritual being in the heavens. Uh, so sometimes when it's talking about stars, it's talking about like what we would call angels, okay? But also, when you just look at the translation of it, what this word means literally could just mean a light in the sky. Are there any other times in Scripture when we hear about God leading people through a light in the sky? When is that? Exodus, right? Exodus. God was leading his people through a, a pillar of cloudy smoke by day so they could see that. But then at night, you aren't going to see the smoke. So what does he do? Fire at night. 
there's some light in the sky that is moving and then stopping where he wants them to stop and pause, where they're to set up camp. And then moves again where he wants them and then pauses again. I don't know exactly what this was. It could have been Jupiter, right? But the point is, Matthew, remember, he is constantly pulling us back into the Old Testament. He's writing to a Jewish audience who knew all these stories, and they would have had that click right away. God has led people by a light in the sky before to freedom. And once again, he is leading people by a light in the sky to find freedom in the king. Because this king is not threatening when he comes and says, I actually have power and authority over all things. Because in that power and authority, you actually find the freedom that you are longing for. You actually find the wholeness to meet the brokenness that you experience. You actually find a king who can have authority over all things and can make all things right and is. And you recognize, I can't do this in my power, but the one who is guiding me, he can do this. You see this this connection here? You see how a star in the sky, that is a great story, but when we connect that to what God has been doing all throughout history, when we see that connection to Exodus, God all throughout history has been leading people to himself. And he has been drawing near to them. And this is a story of God now meeting the people he is drawing. And he's still desiring to draw you and I closer and closer to him. And he is still moving toward us to meet you and I. But what is our response going to be? Are we indifferent to the God who is calling us to him? Or do we feel threatened? We're going to have to change some things in our lives, really, if we, if we recognize he really is king? Because that requires submitting to his authority. Or is it this is a good king who has all power and authority and will rule in the best way possible? And when I submit my life to him, that's when I find true freedom. That's when I have real hope and peace and joy. The other foreshadowing that Matthew does in this story is tells us about those three gifts presented. Gold, because this is the king. Gold, because this is a royal king. And so they, they, this would have been symbolic of that, that he has possession over all. This is the king of the universe. Myrrh and frankincense. Myrrh was used uh, both within royal courts, right? Because of like the smell and everything of it, but also to wrap over dead bodies to preserve that smell. And frankincense, not Frankenstein, like I joked about earlier, incense. These are things you burned in the temple for pleasing aromas that would go up before the Lord. And this is all foreshadowing that this king would be actually wrapped in these spices at his own burial as well. And in doing so, as he enters into that, just as he entered into earth, though he was king of the universe, though he came from the heavens, his entering into earth identified himself with humanity, but his conquering over death revealed his identity as the God over all. 
fully human, fully God, all in one Jesus. But his death, his conquering over that, made a way for the God who can conquer death to give life now to all who would follow him in it. And so this foreshadowing of Jesus' burial, even at his birth story, tells us exactly why he came and tells us exactly what he is king over, that he is not just king over the Jews, but the Magi who come far from east, all nations he is king over. But more than that, he is king over life and death. And this conquering king now, if you do submit to him, you find freedom, not just from the brokenness of the world. You find freedom from death itself. You find freedom from the grave. You find freedom to live eternally, truly and fully human with this good king, celebrating with him forever. Would you guys pray with me that as we go from this place, that the takeaway wouldn't be we go and we start knocking over little figurines in our nativity set. And the takeaway wouldn't be that we go just feeling warmed inside to have a good holiday season with our family. But that the takeaway would be that we go bringing good news, just like the Magi who would travel from afar to come and fall down and worship, that we would go bring good news of this king to those around us as well. That we would go with good news that would cause people to also want to worship this king and not fear him and not run from him or not feel indifferent to him.